you could embody charm, it might very well take the form of James Mangold, an open, warm and intelligent man who also happens to have a proven track record in delivering quite tremendous movies. His latest offering is Logan, a dark and spandex-free addition to the X-Men franchise, which sees Hugh Jackman's Wolverine in the throes of existential crisis. Critics love it, in part due to the director's offbeat take on a sometimes formulaic genre. And as we'll discover, offbeat is a word which applies equally to Marco Beltrami's score. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast in which cinema's great and good discuss the music in their work. While James doesn't entirely accept the claim himself, his films have been described as eclectic. He certainly tackled a rich variety of subject matter from Copland to Girl Interrupted and the Oscar-winning Johnny Cash biopic Walk the Line. Given his affiliation to the troubled country star, it's perhaps unsurprising James chose to end Logan with a cash song in the shape of The Man Comes Around. More on that in a moment, but we begin with the understated piano theme that recurs in many different forms throughout the film and very much sets the tone. James Mango, welcome to Soundtracking, sir. Oh, it's great I to be here. thoroughly enjoyed your new film. Thank you, Edith. It was a real experience and I felt so many emotions in it. I came out talking about it, which is a great sign, I think, when you come out and you want to talk to someone about a film. It was brilliant, so Thank congratulations. You. Thank you very much. This is about the soundtracks to your films. There's such a wonderful soundscape to Logan, be it the sound when Charles is having one of his... His moments. His attacks, yes. <laughs> yeah. To um, this beautiful recurring piano medley. It yes. kind of comes in and out. to ask you when it's a film that you're writing and directing does the music come in before do you start thinking about the music when you're writing I don't think I'm thinking about the music in the sense that I'm going to use this track but I'm thinking about what helps me write the film and they can often be the same thing but sometimes deceivingly the music you listen to while you write it doesn't work with the film you make just because there's a step in between which is the film itself gets a life of its own and starts to make its own demands and music is one of those ways you can interestingly see the difference between what you anticipated and what your new baby actually is you know? <laughs> I like it making a soundtrack for your baby that's a nice way of it is it's it kind of but then your child grows up and you realize I had it all wrong <laughs> I encourage everyone to stay for the credits at the end because you use Johnny Cash. As soon as you hear his voice, I was like properly welling up. The most perfect choice of tune. Many people view my work as wildly eclectic, genre to genre, musical biopics, cop movies, westerns. You know, I live in my skin, so I don't view the films as so different. They all feel united by whatever odd ticks my brain has. <laughs> Thank you. 
But in terms of Johnny Cash being a good fit for Logan, particularly this downtrodden, dilapidated, punch-drunk version of Logan. It was very interesting because, you know, when I was making Walk the Line, I had the honor and privilege to work with John Cash. And that script I wrote was with his guidance, and I have these incredible tapes I made for hours on end, both at his house in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and wow. also over the phone after June died, I would call him every Saturday and just ask him questions. And there was one day when the people around John, I felt like I had everything I needed, but mm. there were people who said, you know, you should keep calling him. He likes this, yeah. talking on Saturdays. And it was kind of amazing because I had this number I would dial for John's house. And I don't know if you've ever dialed a phone number and the person picks up before it rings. John always would pick up before it rang because he was living after June died. It's both sad and beautiful. He retired in their large house to a very small room and he had a cot and he had his guitar, and he had the books he cared about, and a phone, and he lived in this room. And so when the phone rang in that room, it was always just an arm's length away. So it was the miracle, first of all, of you you dial these 11 numbers, and then suddenly, hello, and, and but there was no ring. You just yeah. finished the last number, and so it was, hello. You're finishing off your sandwich. Yeah, you're you're, wait, well, wait. it's like it's a direct dial to God. But, yeah. but, but in one of those later sessions, um, shortly before he passed, I was asking him kind of random questions, and I said, what were your favorite movies when you were a kid? And he told me all this interesting stuff about James Dean movies later and all this stuff that was really interesting that I tried to use as much as I could in the movie. But the one he said when he was about eight or nine, he saw Frankenstein in local theater in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And it had this powerful effect on him. And he said, he looked around the theater and everyone else was scared of the monster. And he said, but he identified with him. And he said, you know, I saw that movie and I went back and I saw it again and I felt like I was just like him. I was made up of all these bad parts. And it's, it was so moving. It brought me to tears when he said this, that a nine-year-old boy would feel like he's made up of all these bad parts. For those of you who somehow don't know, you know, Frankenstein was made up. Grave robbers stole the graves of dead criminals. When he comes to Wolverine, I think he's a very similar outlook on mm -hmm. his own life, that he's a character who recognizes somehow that he's cursed, that he can't have love or a normal life or never can. And whether it's the fault of his own mutancy or science or the world or intolerance or a stew of all those things together, he's a man who's come to recognize that he is cursed. And so I think there is something very hauntingly appropriate about John Cash's voice over a Wolverine movie. What a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder 
reaching down when the man comes around. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. Marco Albertrami did this score for you. When do you bring him on board and what's the conversations that you have or you had about Logan in particular? Well, I always strive to bring on the composer early and I always find that I'm so distracted by everything else just trying to get the movie to take shape that it gets a little foolhardy too soon. I brought Marco on full-time about three or four months before we were done when the movie had kind of settled in and we had a very good temp score on the movie. It was a very tough movie to score. Even temp music, I'm sure your listeners know that as people are making a movie, you're using all these kind of scores from other yeah. movies. And then one of the primary challenges for the composer sometimes is just how do I deal with the fact that this damn filmmaker has gotten so attached? Yeah, they go, make it sound like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, I've been using Morricone's The Mission, but just uh, whatever you come up with, we'll be fine. <laughs> was that it was a tricky score because as I was in all other facets of the movie I was hell-bent not to allow the movie to sound like all these tentpole movies sound which to me has gotten quite stale overly symphonic and heroic and just kind of underscoring action in the same way with a pulse and a boom 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 and at some point it was really important to me that this movie not feel in any way like we were resorting to the default settings of standard superhero or summer movies or anything. I feel like we've reached a kind of exhaustion with what has become a bit of a formula. So some of the things I played for Marco that weren't I wasn't temping with, but things that I felt, A, I did listen to when I was writing, but B, that might help, were um, David Shire's score for um, The Conversation. Um, yeah. If you remember, this is extremely rolling circular piano piece that is the kind of center point, a kind of slightly bluesy, slightly formalized, rolling, strange, haunting piano piece. And that, I think, really helped us move toward piano as a voice.
Another thing I played for him was scores from um, The Gauntlet. Damn, I, you're going to help me remember his yeah, name I now. The composer who also did Outlaw Josie Wales. He used to be a jazz band leader. He did Peckinpah films. Vastly unappreciated composer whose name will leap out us in a moment. <laughs> um, Is it Jerry Fielding? Jerry Fielding. One of the points I was making with the score of the Gauntlet, which was kind of a jazz session group, was process yields product, and most scores that you listen to and hear are the result of a, a method of production now where there's a click track, there's very specific timings, they're supposed to come in and come out. I think the scores sound like they're made to a click track. I think they sound robotized. I think they sound manufactured. Digital. Digital. <laughs> but they also sound like they're, they're you know, when, when an orchestra is playing, tempo increases, pulls back. There's, yeah, there's breathes. Yeah. The way movies are written on digitally now and, you know, tracking and then notation coming out of the playing of a, these things end up, they're timed mm -hmm. and they don't push and pull and the orchestra doesn't push and pull, and, and you don't feel the music breathing, as you say. Yeah. And um, I think that's really important. Outlaw Josie Wales is an incredible score, too, of his. But the point was they're non-orchestral solutions. Yeah. Um, solutions with free drummer, bassist, horns, keyboards, but there's a sense of looseness about them. notice even in some of the action sequences where you still need a pulse but our drums are kind of riffing and slamming and flying all over the place sloppily I noticed as well when they're escaping the compound where yeah. the piano's almost Goes bastardized. Nuts. It's yes. kind of like, what? It really grabs you. It's wonderful. No, it's just a really incredible piece of playing. I think it's the same guy who played the piano in La La Land, too. The, oh, wow. the pianist. Yeah, he's one of the best piano players in the West Coast. Randy is his first name. Like, good first name. Good, good first name. Yeah. <laughs> 
worked with Marco as well on 310 to Human. I loved that film and I loved that soundtrack as well. Yeah, he did a great job. Well, Marco, I mean, to speak, you were asking about process with Marco, and I, I went into a wild tangent, but <laughs> Marco's wildly talented composer, but he's also up for a challenge, and the world of writing movie scores has become a bit of a factory, and I tend, just like I am with my actors and myself and my other screenwriters and all the other people who collaborate, I like it messy. I like the process messy. I like to try things and throw them away. People tell me about composers who like write the music for a scene and go, here it is. And they go, well, I have a bit of an issue with it. Nope, that's it. And I'm like, no, sorry, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> that doesn't have to do with like, oh, I like Marco because he's compliant. I like Marco because he's alive as an artist and not just delivering things and saying tough, this is what it is. Because to me, music is the final framing device of the film. And when I was a younger director, I was sometimes traumatized by the fact that either I didn't have the vocabulary to get to what I wanted, you know, as Elvis Costello says, that uh, talking about music is like dancing about architecture and describing what you're looking for is really hard, but you know it when you hear it. And the problem with that is a composer had to write it for you to hear it. And now you're suddenly going, yeah, right. Now that you've written that, I know this whole idea is wrong. <laughs> and you need someone who is enough in service of the film and your vision that their ego doesn't get caught up in whether this piece is irreplaceable or not. And more, they get caught up in the quest to solve the puzzle of the movie. Thurston Moore, yeah. Sonic Youth. It's it was a fantastic work. experience. <laughs> And it was really educational for me in regard to scores because why, whereas the technology even at that point in the late 90s was getting so everyone could just write to picture, you know, yeah. a composer could sit down and literally put the video of the picture on their screen with time code and connect their keyboard to the screen and just play. But Thurston, because he hadn't ever written a score before and was just also kind of messier by nature, <laughs> he watched the movie in a theater, a rough cut of the movie, and then he went away to, um, well, he didn't go very far away because he was, I was in Tribeca and he was in the, the Lower East Side. He went to his studio on Mott Street and he just stayed up all night and recorded a lot of music, just played guitar all night Great. from his impressions of the film, not to picture. brought me this cassette tape with an hour and a half of music on it and said, I'm not really sure what goes where, 
<laughs> the only thing he said, he had said to me, what do you need? And I had said, I need an undertow. I think I need a love theme. I think I need something for transitions. I could give him this list. And he handed me all this music. And I think something around 10 minutes would work for the love theme. I think something about 40 minutes in will work for the... And he was right in most cases, but also the score became what was on the cassette tape. Uh, my editors and I just cut this beautiful flowing session he did just kind of dreaming with his guitar all night long in the basement and just cut these pieces together against picture and he did a couple fixes or putting a final chord or something on things but it was wow. it was really just that simple and I've always compared the process with more conventional composers where I'm always after something that instinctual for them because it's so pure also what I had with Thurston because he's both the composer and the player is that the gestural quality, the way the, the guitar is feeling, is something that is not t t t set and composed. It doesn't feel like it's written. I don't want the score to really feel any more written than I want the dialogue to feel written. I want it to feel like it's just happening. That doesn't mean it, it can't be written, but it means to be written in a way that feels effortless. Everything from Mrs. Doubtfire to Seven. I mean, he's <laughs> been all over the place. Very cool score. I always felt it was a little maybe big for the movie. We were under all this pressure. That was really my first large movie. The cast of that film was so large that I always felt like Howard's score, if we didn't have Miramax on our backs and kind of everyone going, this movie has to be big, so big, <laughs> that all his themes and everything, I would have, I would love to hear, you know, like everything is is learning. Yeah. I'd love to hear a more of a session group playing mm -hmm. what Howard wrote. We actually recorded it here in London instead of the grand orchestra we have, which always <laughs> felt a little out of scale with sloppy, chubby, sly stumbling around. <laughs> Thank you. 
You have a wonderful collection of contemporary music in that film as well, though. Do you find that side of it an easy thing in terms of what specific tracks? Oh, Copland? Yeah. I was so blessed. I, yeah, Bruce's song, I mean, I was so thrilled because I guess he actually watched the movie to let us use it. And we had no money, so the, so he had to let us use it for like a dollar. And wow. so that was a thrilling experience. I'm driving a stolen car On a pitch black night Yeah, it was for me a very much a Springsteen inspired film. When I wrote the screenplay in 1995, six, on the first page, I had, um, what are the opening lyrics of Tougher Than the Rest? Something about being all dressed up in blue. I've been watching you a while and you've been watching me too. Well, it's Saturday night. You're all dressed up in blue. I've been watching you a while. Somebody ran out Left somebody's heart in a mess Well, if you're looking for love Honey, I'm tougher than the rest And the song is about a woman As Bruce wrote it About, you know, about a woman he's been watching Who's yeah. dressing up in blue but there's also something, as often is the case in Bruce's lyrics, that it's at the edge of disturbing. And, and so there's a slight stalker quality to this lyric, too. But I transferred it to being about the police, New York Police Department, which, of course, wears blue. And, and, and um, I've been watching you a while, and you've been watching me, too. And that song, Tougher Than the Rest, I listened to from the album after, after Born in the USA, um, uh, where he's uh, looking like it, quite a dapper Dan. Um, sitting on the front of a car on like a tunnel of love. I listened to that song over and over. I also listened to the score of Full Metal Jacket. We tempt most of Copland with the score to Full Metal Jacket. So um, that whole big silent gunfight in the end was to a track named Leonard. Uh, We're gonna which, play that. Yeah, you should. <laughs> it's a very beautiful synth track incredible percussion and synth. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm rattling through all these films, but there's so many great films, and also the variety of composers that you have worked with. It's a different, different. Please keep rattling away. <laughs> but, you know, you touched on Walk the Line earlier with your wonderful story about Johnny Cash, T-Bone Burnett. Why was he the right man for that? I met him when I was making Girl Interrupted through Winona Ryder, and I um, 
at a some kind of small concert. Um, I just remember everyone was sitting on someone's lawn and Beck was playing a solo guitar and the whole thing was a little awe-inspiring for me. And wow. uh, and I, uh, when Owen introduced me to T-Bone and I was like in awe because I, um, I was a huge fan of the albums he had produced with Elvis Costello. And also his solo, I mean, if you've never heard his single of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, have you ever heard no, his I cover haven't. of, all right, you must play T-Bone Burnett singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. It will, it, it literally will be on your like playlist, your for like life. favorite playlist for life. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat. Or help you at the auto mat. Men grow cold, these girls grow old. We all lose our charm in the end. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Let's rock. I gushed all over him. I said I was working on a movie about Johnny Cash. I said I was working with Johnny Cash, but I need help. And I want to have the actors sing, and I want to produce these tracks over again. And he seemed interested in game, and it kind of went from there. I mean, T-Bone had many contributions to the movie, but the biggest of which was he said that he produces a lot of first albums for bands. And he said that what usually happens is that the band um, has been only playing in little clubs and whatever, and suddenly they get their first album, and you get them in a studio, and the first devastating thing that both the producers, the studio or record company, and the band themselves discover is they really don't play very well. <laughs> the sudden absence of all the great distortion and crowd noise of a club, it's suddenly the silence, of the, the musicians all go like, shit, I can't play that well. And the and a huge decline in confidence occurs. And he goes, but what you do is you book these sessions, you get a very cheap studio and you book it for a month. And so they go, the first week they get incredibly depressed and then they grow. He said that like in the next few weeks, he goes, I've seen it go both ways, but that usually the band grabs this moment if there's enough time and turns it around, that they figure it out, they actually take a step forward. And he said in relation to Reese and Joaquin and all the others, that what we should do was just get a studio and have this, in a sense, a rehearsal every day at that studio where they record their music, hear themselves singing, get really depressed about the way they sound and playing and it'll scare the shit out of them and then they'll find it, you know, if yeah. time allows. And we set it up in this studio in T-Bone's house and Walk and Reese and I would meet with T-Bone every day and they'd just play music and we'd listen to it and then it started to click in. The last one to click in was Joaquin. I mean, Reese has a very nice voice and just kind of had to get over her anxiety doing it.
Keen not only had the anxiety, but his voice wasn't as low as John's. And so we transposed all the music up a step or two so that he could kind of not sound like he was reaching beyond where he could sing. Yeah. About eight days before we left for location in Tennessee, Joaquin's voice dropped. It was like a miracle, like from John Cash himself. And suddenly he was like, I, you know, Jim, I think I can sing him in the right key now. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know what happened. And and That's awesome. and so the band had to relearn them all in the in the chords that John originally wrote them, and we did. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Down by wild desire, I fell into a ring of fire. Another great story about that movie is the story John Cash told me, which is that he wrote Walk the Line while he was in the service in Germany. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know how to write music, so what he'd do, and what he did in that song, for the guitar players among you, that song's got some really weird changes in it. And what, uh, I wish I could remember whose song it was. Hank Snow, is that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, okay, so there's Hank Snow had a song that John liked, and he had a little tape recorder, a reel-to-reel, like these mini reel-to-reels. So he put the Hank Snow song on and he played it backwards. And then he learned the chords if you played the Hank Snow song backwards. And then he wrote lyrics for the chords of the Hank Snow song backwards. And since he didn't have any understanding of how to create a chord structure for a song, you figured, well, probably if I took a good song and did it backwards, it would be a good chord structure He's also. He's going to know. <laughs> no one knew, and there was Walk the Line board. But uh, anyway. Uh, Michael Dana that. wrote yeah. a beautiful score Gorgeous. for that movie. He recorded it with a lot of, um, if I remember right, a Canadian group that plays glass, broken glass and glasses and kind of scraping literally as you might with a wine glass, yeah, lick yeah. your finger and they play all these kind of elements of glass mixed with orchestra. Very interesting.
I was inspired to hire Michael because of the score he had done for Ang Lee's uh, Ice Storm. Oh, Ice Storm, Ice yeah. Storm. Really beautiful score. We, we just talk, spoke to Ang actually about it last week, about yeah. working with, with Michael as well. I um, was also very, I was a huge Jayhawks fan. Do you know the Jayhawks? Yeah. I actually wanted them to score the movie. I wanted to do like a Simon and Garfunkel score originally for that movie. Studio would never let me. Oh. Um, they were like, who are the Jayhawks? <laughs> and I was like, oh, they're so awesome. <laughs> it's my favorite band. <laughs> incredible <laughs> and they're like yeah not gonna play to middle america sorry and i'm like they're from middle america <laughs> but doesn't work i've gotten a lot tougher as time goes <laughs> yeah. by um the as you can see from logan i don't take no for an answer at this point but um uh, michael did a beautiful job we've run out of time i'm afraid but please make sure you've got another film coming again soon so that we can catch up and do part let's two let's absolutely do that this um, is a pleasure and we can cover whatever's remaining so much okay um, thank you so much james my Congratulations pleasure my on pleasure logan. From Michael Dana's score for Girl Interrupted, that's Driving in the Rain, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with James Mangold. My huge thanks to James for taking the time to talk to us and for sharing so many honest, personal and downright interesting stories about the music in his work. You can find a full track list for the show via edithbowman.com, which is also the place to go to catch up with all of our previous episodes. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do subscribe via my website, Audioboom or iTunes, if you haven't already. Next up is Jordan Voigt-Roberts, director of Kong Skull Island, a rip-roaring monster movie starring Brie Larson, Tom Hiddleston, John C. Reilly and Samuel L. Jackson. It also features a soundtrack that provides more than just a passing homage to Apocalypse Now. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>